Well, here we are again, and we'll close out uh, this chapter today. And, and one of the things that's really I've appreciated throughout this chapter, and I think we'll see it today again, is just the balance, the beautiful and wonderful balance of the Word of God. That in this chapter that where we see the beauty and goodness of sex and in marriage being affirmed, we also see the beauty and the goodness of celibacy and singleness being, being held up. And so that's badly needed in the world and in the church today, isn't it? I mean, just as we're giving some emphasis to, to singleness, as Paul is doing here, our world often looks down on those who are single, particularly those who are single and celibate. Um, and, and so to insist on celibacy and singleness, as the Bible does, is sort of to condemn people to some kind of incomplete life. That's how many in the world view that. You're, 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 you're not a complete person. You can't possibly be satisfied. That's without, without um, that kind of sexual fulfillment. And so sadly, though, often the messaging and in the church also misses the mark and is rather unhelpful when it comes to speaking to singleness. Now, the church sometimes pressures uh, people to, to marry as soon as possible. Like that's the goal, to make that the primary goal in young adulthood, to, to enter into marriage. And so much, so much that we say and do in the church, it, 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 it assumes married life. And we, we sometimes fail to actively remember the singles in our midst and, and take, take that into account. So if you're single, if you've never married, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, or however you are in the church, you can kind of get the impression that maybe you're deficient or, or odd or incomplete because so much revolves around married life, around couples. Um, even how we speak of singles, sometimes we speak of them as unmarrieds. It's always nice to be defined as being unsomething, isn't it? Like I'm the lack that you have of being married. That's, but that's how we can we can communicate, unfortunately. And uh, and so if you really want to belong, you need to be married as soon as possible. That's church. But but Paul speaks right to us here. He he affirms that singleness, like marriage, is is good and it it has its own dignity and worth. And so he, Paul himself, we get, a, we get a hint of his own biography here, as we read earlier in chapter 7, in verse 7 and 9 there, that Paul is saying this as a single man. He says, I, I wish that all were as I myself am. It is good for them to remain single as I am. So at the time that Paul's writing this, he's single. He, he's probably either widowed or divorced. And so we, he would have most likely been married earlier in life, as any good Jew would have been. As he grew up, he was a member, most likely a member of the Sanhedrin, and you would have pretty much had to have been married to enter into that circle. And so either Mrs. Paul left him after he was converted, as he addresses that uh, very situation in this chapter, or uh, his wife had died. But, but I just want, it's important to keep that in mind, because this isn't just abstract advice uh, that, that Paul is giving us here. This is, this is personal painful history for him as well. Whatever the situations of him being single now, he's not writing as some kind of crusty old bachelor who's phobic of women. He is, he is, he's writing as a person who, whose heart bears the scars of loss in one way or another. And so, he, so, so keep that in mind as he says these words. He says, I, again, I wish you were as I am, but each one has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. We, we won't have time to, 
linger back there. I want us to get to where we're at in verse 25. But I would just say that the, the difference between what someone making a single in marriage, it's, it's not something inherent in the person. It's the gift of God. The word gift, it's the same root as we get our word grace. It's the God gives grace to some for this. Now, that, that I know we, we've, some of you have been exposed to this kind of, this is kind of the, where I grew up. And do, do I have the gift of singleness? It was kind of like the spiritual gift inventories back in the 90s. When, what is my spiritual gift? This is the most important question. Do I have this gift of singleness? And if I do, I guess I'm never going to be married. And if I, if I don't, okay, well, then there's, you know, I can still be looking. But that's not the point. It's, you may have this gift now. You may, you may not. That Lord may change. And that's very evident in this chapter. This things, things, circumstances change. But the Lord gives you grace in what he's called you to now. That's his point. Remain as you are. The circumstances that you're in, the most important thing about your life right now is whether you're married or single. The most important thing is the call of God in Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what shapes your identity. And so you can be content as you are. And maybe the Lord intends for you to be single for, for your whole life, or, or, or maybe not, and that might change. And so, all right, so let's, let's jump in. But I, I just appreciate how sane, how balanced uh, this chapter is. And so let's remind ourselves again of the context. So Paul's dealing with this faction in the church there at Corinth, this group of people that we've called the super spiritual group, remember and so they're, they're about all things spiritual. They thought that Christians should have as little to do then with the body as possible. That, the, the, that we're new spiritual people now, and so we need, to, we need to be done with all those bodily urges and impulses, and that's bad, that's low, that's base. And in particular, they thought they could, they could somehow enhance their spiritual standing with the Lord by abstaining and refraining from sexual relations altogether. And so... Some of the believers in the church, they're troubled about this. And they're, they write to Paul and they ask him these questions about this thing, about sex and celibacy and marriage and divorce and, and singleness. And he's responding to those questions in this chapter. So he started earlier in the chapter primarily by addressing the married people in the congregation. And, he, and you have the super spiritual ones who are saying, remember, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so they, they applied this, that even if you're married, you need to live as though you're celibate. You need to be celibate. And if you, can't, if you can't hack that, then you need to go ahead and divorce and separate from one another because Christians should have nothing to do with the body, nothing to do with sex. And Paul says, no, no, no. Stay married. Don't deprive one another of, this, of, of, of sex and marriage. This is, this is a good gift from God. And so this is his point earlier in the chapter. Then you get into... Verses 17 to 24, we looked at last week, the hub of this chapter, and Paul lays out this big overarching principle that, that runs throughout this passage, and basically says, again, that our present circumstances, married, single, that's, that's not the most important thing about us. It's the call of God and Christ. That's the most important thing, so we shouldn't feel like we have to change our circumstances in order to become more spiritual, in order to level up with the Lord and stay on the spiritual plateau we, we, we need to live out instead our identity. We live out our identity as those who are, who are called by God in whatever situation the Lord has us in. And then in the second half of the letter, where we give our attention today, the focus shifts to the unmarried in the church. And the, and the super spiritual teachers are coming to those who are unmarried and saying, whatever you do, don't marry. It's wrong to marry. It's giving in to the desires of the body. It's displeasing to the Lord. So, and, and if you're betrothed, if you're engaged, he addresses this. 
Your, your relationship should be broken off. You shouldn't go through with that marriage because the body is this base, low thing. And spiritual Christians have nothing to do with it. So you can imagine, again, all the confusion, all the turmoil that this was causing in the, in the church at Corinth. Some of them were engaged, and in the first century, engagement, as many of you know, or betrothal that was much more serious than we think of engagement. It, it had the force of law. It was as you were bound by oath to marry this person, and, and, it, and you, in a sense, you were legally married except for that marriage being consummated. And so you have this Christian fellow, and he's engaged this young lady, and, and they're looking forward to their wedding day and life together and, and, and fill with this anticipation, and these teachers come in and say, it would be wrong for you to go through with this. To marry would be very, very unspiritual. And so this young man and this lady, they're like, what do we do? What are we to do? We, we don't want to displease God. We don't want to do the wrong thing. Should we just break off the engagement? Or there are single people in the church. They had, they had normal desires to meet someone, to marry. And these teachers are saying, no, 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 don't think of that, doing that. That would be wrong to do. That would be wrong to even desire that. And so this teaching is creating all kinds of tension in this church and all kinds of friction and and, and, and placing an enormous burden on conscientious single Christians. And they're haunted by this fear of sinning against the Lord. What do we do? And on, and on top of this, we see in verse 26, there seems to be some particular set of circumstances in Corinth that, that, that did make marriage unwise for some people. Not immoral, not unspiritual, but unwise. And so he says in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress... It's good for a person to remain as he is. We don't know what that distress or that crisis was. It, uh, some speculated maybe it was a persecution or, or just civil unrest in Corinth or famine or something like that. We, we really don't know. But there was something happening there that in that time, for some reason, made marriage unwise for some people. I mean, we, we, can, we don't have to think hard about this one. I mean... There are many weddings that were supposed to happen in March and April that were postponed. And, and not only, uh, sometimes a lot because the venues weren't uh, open or couldn't have guests, that kind of thing, but you, you start to think, maybe, maybe somebody lost their job, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe uh, one of the, one of the uh, members of that engaged couple there, they're caring for an older family member, uh, parents or grandparents. And so just the dynamics, and you say, okay, this, maybe this isn't the wisest time. Maybe we need to wait. It's that kind of thing, I think, is what, what he's dealing with. So it's a very specific issue that they're grappling with here. And so what does Paul say to these troubled Christian singles and engaged couples? Well, he gives them, he gives us, in this passage, these, these three masterly pieces of advice. And I put advice in air quotes because he comes to them with apostolic authority, and he makes this very clear. I don't know what tone of voice he uses in verse 40, but he, when he says, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God, I think there's a little sarcasm here, but I, that's just me. Uh, um, and and so, but, so he's writing spirit-breathed words, but you notice as we read, he's not wielding this, that, that authority in any kind of heavy-handed way. He's, he's very pastoral. And, and he comes as a wise and loving pastor to them. And so he says in verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. That Jesus didn't speak to this issue exactly, but he is an apostle. And he says, I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. And he's urging them, and he's saying it's good. And this is the language he uses here. And so he gives this kind of pastoral 
apostolic advice which is balanced and biblical and practical and sane and liberating. And I want to outline these three pieces of advice quickly, and then we'll take the table together. First one is this. First piece of advice is cultivate a spirit of flexible contentment. Cultivate a spirit of flexible contentment. Look at verse 26 again. I I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. That's that's a spirit of contentment. Be, be, Be content with your present situation in life. Accept God's providence. Don't be obsessed with changing your circumstances. We talked a lot about this last week. Again, he's he's making application to that big principle we looked at last time. So he says in verse 27, "Are are you abound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. I don't think this is the most helpful way to translate this verse. It's probably, we could say, a mistranslation. Paul's not talking to married people here. He's talking to betrothed people. Uh, so people who are, who are bound, people who've made a promise to marry. And he says, if you're bound, or we would say if you're engaged or betrothed, don't seek to break it off. Don't cut it off. Don't listen to these super spiritual people who are telling you to break off your engagement to this person. Don't, don't pay any attention to them. Are you bound to a woman? Remain as you are. Continue with your engagement. And then he says, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Are you unattached? Are you an unengaged uh, bachelor? There's no, no obligations, no promises that you've made to anyone. And he says, don't, don't go looking for a wife. Don't be content as you are. Cultivate a spirit of contentment. But, that, but this isn't a hard and fast rule. He's not laying down a law here. He, he's, this, is, this is not the command of the Lord. He's communicating the importance of contentment, but it's, it's flexible contentment. What he says in verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So he's he's pushing back against these false teachers and he's saying there's nothing wrong with marrying. It may not be wise right now, but it's not wrong. And if you think I I was content to be single, but now I've met this person, I want to get married. He's saying that's fine. There's no sin involved in that. He wants, he wants them to be content. He wants them to, be, to remain as they are and be okay with that and not see their identity wrapped up in their circumstances but in their calling of God. But he says, so be content to be single if you're single, but if your circumstances change and they point in the direction of marriage, you haven't sinned. You haven't done anything wrong. You just see how balanced his approach is here. And, and he's, he's navigating the, the, the nuanced way this, this challenging set of circumstances. And he repeats his teaching down in verse 36 to 38. There's another translation interpretation issue here, and I, I can't go into all the details, but some of your versions may, may kind of, uh, verse 36, it, it sounds as if it's a, it's a father um, is giving away his unmarried daughter in marriage. I don't think that's the best way to translate this. I think the better way is to see this as, as though Paul speaking to, to a fiancé, as we, we would say, marrying the lady to whom he is betrothed. And he says in verse 36, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. Or we might, might say, if, if the man is engaged to a, a young lady and he really thinks that he ought to get married to her soon, he can, he can do that. It's, it's not sinning. 
They can get married. No, let me a little word of caution here. Be careful with that. This is not, this is not giving, uh, you know, advocating. Uh, Paul, this is not Paul saying, just listen to your heart and listen to your passions. And if you really, you know, it doesn't matter what everybody else says. It doesn't matter. Blow off God's wisdom and everything else God has, God has made clear in his word. That's not what he's saying. There are other matters to consider. Paul's not giving a, a, his full and final treatise on singleness or how to find a spouse or anything like that. And the community is involved in counsel and these kinds of decisions, and you need, you need input. But, but he's simply saying it's not a matter of morality. It's not morality that's at stake here. It's wisdom. And, and um, in verse 37, though, he says, if, if he can stay engaged, wait a little longer, that would be wise. Then in verse 38, he who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. See what he's saying? It's very, it's very flexible. He gives these people freedom. The super spiritual faction, there is no flexibility. They're saying, don't get married no matter what. Paul says, be content with the circumstances God has placed you in, but the circumstances may change, and that's fine. What, what God's will is for you this year may not be his will for you in the coming year. He may bring you into a new situation and a new circumstance. And so just we, we, we don't need to work ourselves up over this. Like this is what I think was happening with the Corinthians because of the impact of these false teachers. You don't have to say, well, God apparently wanted me single in 2020, so I guess that means he wants me single in 2021. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. So it's contentment. That's what Paul's calling for. But flexible contentment. Be happy, content to remain as you are. But there's nothing wrong if your circumstances change to change your situation. So that's the first piece of pastoral, apostolic advice that Paul gives. The second piece of advice is this. It's to live with, with the perspective of eternity. Live with the perspective of eternity. So it seems as we read between these lines, I alluded to this, that, that these Christians were getting so worked up by these foolish false teachers there and, 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 the, and these questions about marriage and celibacy were just dominating their thoughts. And, and should I get married? Can we still get married? Is it wrong to be married? Would that make me unspiritual or more sinful if I, if I change the situation? And so this seems to be happening in the church there. And there, I mean, there may be some here who's not, maybe not dominated. Your thoughts aren't dominated by the morality of marriage, but by the possibility of marriage. And this was, this was consuming their thoughts. And and these false teachers saying, don't get married. And these, they're upset. And this, this is just filling their whole mental horizon, these questions. What should we do? Get married, stay single. We, what, do we, what do we decide? And, and Paul says to them, in essence here, this piece of advice. He's saying, friends, I, I, I think you're getting things out of proportion. Uh, you're out of proportion. We need to get things back in their proper perspective. Let's, let's not forget what's truly important in life. And the most important thing in, in your life as a Christian is not whether you're married or single. He says, verse, 21, verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The, the appointed time, this is that technical language, the time of Christ's return, future things, it, it has grown very short. I, I mean... Whatever Paul's conception of that and, and the imminence of Christ's return, we just say, we, at best, in, in, this, in perspective of eternity, we have a few years on earth. We're, we're pilgrims, we're strangers, we're, 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 then we're going to be with Jesus forever. 
joined to our bridegroom. And so these Christians are so uptight, they're so agitated and disturbed about matters that are, that are not ultimately the most important matters. They're not eternal matters. It goes on, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though, as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? For the present form of this world is passing away. What does that mean? <laughs> Careful. What does he mean when he says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none? Does that mean, married men, that when the service is over today, you're going to take that ring off? You're just going to go out to your car whenever you feel like it and hop in it and just drive off, leaving your wife here sitting, talking to a friend, standing out in the hot sun? Is, is, and you say, well, that's in the Bible. Those who have wives are to live as those who have none. Or tomorrow night and your, you know, your wife is made meal and it's sitting there at the table and you're coming home from work and you're not coming, you don't come and you don't come and it's, it's almost midnight and you show him, where have you been? Get off my back. Pastor Justin said, <laughs> let those who have wives live as though they have none. No, don't, do, don't you dare quote me. This is not the bachelor's charter you've been looking for, married men. Or, or what does he say? Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. I mean, we go to a funeral and we just kind of cut up and, and tried about it and just say, hey, man, isn't this great that we're able to meet like this? This is so much fun. Of course not. It's not what Paul's saying. That, that would be a ridiculous misinterpretation of Scripture. That, that makes the Bible look silly, both of those. Right? So, so we need common sense when we come to the Bible, including a passage like this. He's, he's simply reminding us to look at things from the perspective of eternity, of heaven. To, to live, to think in light of eternity, of, of the life to come, not to get so wrapped up and absorbed in the daily worldly affairs and relationships of life. And so when you're sorrowful, when, when something awful happens in your life, you mourn. The Huthers are mourning and they're right to do so right now. Of course you mourn, but he's saying don't, don't let your sorrow consume you. Don't let your sorrow engulf everything and plunge you into this deep, dark, hopeless, joyless state. By all means, mourn. But remember, you have hope. You have joy. Lasting, permanent, heavenly joy. And when you're happy about something, maybe you get a promotion to work or you get a nice birthday present, something you're looking forward to, or you, or, or you receive you know, it's just something special happens in your life, by all means, Rejoice. What is he saying? Rejoice as though not rejoicing. Don't get so carried away that you forget that we live in this sinful, fallen, suffering, needy world that's still awaiting final redemption. And when you're buying things and using things and conducting business, don't act as if those things are the most important things in life. View them in light of eternity. And so, of course, his primary concern here is is relating to how we think about marriage and these matters. And so if you have a husband or wife you love, by all means, love, respect them, joyfully carry out your duty to them. But remember, the day is going to come when you, one of you, both of you, will be gone. You'll be without them. And he puts marriage in this list of things that are of this present form of the world that are passing away. Jesus talks about this, that marriage, little m marriage, earthly marriage... It's part of the present form of the world. It's, it's going to be gone. And our earthly marriages, they serve as this beautiful picture and this image of the big M marriage, 
the marriage that we have, the Christ and the church, Ephesians 5. But, but as much as, as, as we, rightly so, take tremendous joy in our earthly marriages and God uses them to bless us and to, and to sanctify us, they're not sources, they're not to be sources of eternal hope. Ultimate hope, earthly marriages will pass away, but, and, 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 we have, and we have perfect unity with our Savior and with one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we do, we won't miss our marriages one bit. That's, that's truth, and including all of the blessings that come with that. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our desires. So Paul, he's talking about perspective here, our, our perspective on things. And the key phrase, phrase is, as though not. Mourn as though not mourning. Rejoice as though not rejoicing. Be married as though not marrying. And what I would say, he's calling for, he's for, calling for us to cultivate um, a, a certain degree of biblical detachment. We have to be careful with that, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. To say these things are wonderful. These are good gifts from God. These are by his grace, and I, I enjoy them, and I want to make the most of this. But I could do without them. I still have the Savior, and he's coming back for me. He's returning, and, and they, these things don't determine my life. That's my identity is not found in those things. And so when we get to heaven, there's probably not going to be an angel comes up to you, and the first question, are, were you married or were you single? It's not going to matter. It's not going to be something we're talking about. They're wonderful gifts now, but they're secondary. They're, they're temporal. They're part of this present world, that form that's passing away. And so these young Christians are consumed with thoughts of marriage and celibacy, and they can hardly think of anything else. And Paul says, hey, you're getting things out of proportion. The important thing is, to, is to, to, that you're called to serve Christ and to, to do his work and to please him. And, and these other things will sort themselves out. You can trust the Lord with him. Don't be consumed with him. Live life in the perspective of eternity. So this is the second piece of advice. And then the third piece, real quick. It says, serve the Lord with relaxed and undivided devotion. Serve the Lord with relaxed and undivided devotion. I know that sounds almost contradictory, but it's not. This is, again, I love this balance here. So be flexibly content where the Lord has us. Live in light of eternity. And then we're to serve the Lord with this relaxed but undivided devotion. So in verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. I think he's thinking of, 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 of this is, comes from living in light of eternity and, 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 and being content. And I want you to be free from these, these anxieties, particularly these pressures of these false teachers. And then verse 35, look down at verse 35, kind of bracketing this paragraph. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint or the word like muzzle on you but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So he wants them to have undivided devotion to the Lord. This is what I think he's saying in the flow of this passage. But it's not the way the super spiritual ones are trying to force this and to manipulate you to have this. It's devotion, but it's relaxed. It's grace-fueled devotion. It's not muzzled, legalistic, guilt-laden, hyper-spiritual devotion. It's, it's this relaxed, undivided devotion that we need to give ourselves to. And, and yet Paul makes the case that there are some advantages to singleness in this regard. 
There's a couple of names here. One, singleness, it's free from, from the troubles and anxieties of married life. Not free from all troubles and anxieties, but those that come with married life. So back in verse 28, we kind of skipped over this, but Paul says, Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And here he's expounding on what he means by that. We'll say more about that in a moment. But, but to say that those who are married will have worldly troubles, it's not a criticism of marriage. That's what he's doing here. He's just he's being realistic. There are challenges. There are heartaches that come with marriage. It's not all happily ever after, after the uh, wedding bells you know, finally stop ringing. It's just bliss from then on. And, and, and this certainly isn't that, again, that single people don't have troubles and in the world, but there's a whole set of challenges and risks and troubles that, that are opened up to you when you're married, when you say those words, I do. Just putting two sinners together in an intimate relationship like that is bound to bring new struggles. Joys, yes. Wonderful graces and gifts from God, yes, but there are great challenges. I mean, there's a potential just for greater grief and loss. Suffering, sickness, death of a spouse. When you have children, sickness, death, special needs, prodigals. It's not, it's not to say if you're single, so if you're in this church, you walk through those things and you grieve too and you carry those burdens with people. I know you do. I'm not minimizing. That's, Paul's not minimizing that, but it's not the same way as if you're walking through them personally. And so he's not saying that single life is just carefree and you don't have anything to worry about. It's just not true, but he's saying singleness is free from those anxieties that particularly come with marriage. It, it opens up this, you have, you have the troubles there, and now you have the, all these other troubles, and there are many. But again, in the immediate context, which we don't know exactly, if there was famine, if there was persecution, you just how, how much more complicated life would be for those who enter into marriage. And this is why I think he's saying, wait, if you can. It may not be wise right now. Because troubles are compounded in marriage. Another reason he, he's urging this is singleness, it affords this ability to be more focused about the focused and anxious about the things of the Lord. He says, I want you to be free from anxiety. So there, in that sense, he's saying these are bad. I, I don't want you to carry these. I want you to be free from that burden. And then I think, again, there's a major interpretive question here, but I think he's he's doing a play on words here. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then he says next, he speaks of it in a positive way. To be anxious for, Paul does the same thing in Philippians. He, he, he says, I don't want you to be anxious. And then he says, I'm anxious for the churches. And, and, and so to be anxious for, it could just mean to care for, to be concerned about, to be weighed down, weighed, something that weighs heavily on you. So the unmarried man, he says, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious also about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. So, so he's not teaching here. I know this is, not, I don't hear many people say this, but it may be a first reading. It could sound like this. That these unmarried people have this wonderful interest in and enthusiasm for the Lord's affairs. Everything's about the Lord. And then you have these married people who have no concern at all for the Lord's work. They're just consumed with worldly stuff. That's all they care about. That's all they think about, talk about. That can't be what Paul means. I mean, that goes against everything that he's been saying in this chapter. There's no super spiritual singleness or something like that. Is it true that unmarried people are necessarily more committed and devoted to Christ than married people? I hope not. 
All of our elders and pastors in this church are married men, so I hope this isn't the case. Um, but, he, but so every Christian is called, we're called to have this undivided devotion to the Lord, not just singles. What he's saying, that very practically married, married people can and must devote an enormous amount of time and focus and energy to their spouse and if they have children to them as well. Single individuals, he says it's undivided. They don't have to divide. They don't have to divide their focus as much. They don't have obligations towards a spouse. If a single person wants to go out and do something, they, they don't have to check with their spouse first. They just do it. I, I, and I'll come back and qualify that in a moment. But if you want to commit to be involved in a certain ministry in church, you don't have to check with anybody. You can just do it. Go visit a missionary and bless them. Just do it. Okay, and raise the money. Do it. Friend, friend and is having a hard time and calls you up. I mean, I mean, I know you have other duties, but in the evenings you might have the freedom just to go, go be with them. Not having to check with anybody. So, so there, there's there's that kind of freedom. What he's what he's saying is is not that in singleness it's easy to be devoted to the Lord, and in marriage it's hard. What he's saying, the contrast and. I think this is helpful. It has to do with the difference between complexity and simplicity. There's a great book that someone, a few folks in here have read, Seven Myths of Singleness about Singleness by Sam Albury. And he, he makes this distinction. I think it's very helpful. Married life is more complicated. Singleness is, is, is more straightforward, generally so. For the single person, there's generally greater freedom. Their focus is less divided. Their lives are generally less complicated Still have responsibilities, still have obligations, still have troubles, care for people and their concerns, but they're generally pulled in fewer directions than married people. And therefore, they can, they're free to give more undivided time and energy to the things of the Lord, to please the Lord. That's what he's saying. Now, those advantages, those opportunities come with great responsibilities too, don't they? He doesn't just say, you know, you're... you're you're free to use all of this time and, and, and freedom for whatever you want for yourself. No, it's to be used for the Lord. And so it has, it has purpose. It needs to be stewarded. Our culture doesn't help here, does it? I mean, singleness is it's said is a time for selfishness and for immaturity and irresponsibility, irresponsibility and even immorality. Like that's what, that's what you squeeze all you can out of. But this is not the big biblical vision for singleness. It's an opportunity to serve the Lord with his undivided devotion. And, and what I, I think is great, though, is he's defining singleness by, not by the absence of something, but by this beauty and opportunity that's there. It's an opportunity to be undividedly devoted to the Lord. Positive vision of it. So Paul wants them. He wants us to be undivided in our devotion to the Lord, but, but this is a relaxed Gospel resting devotion. It's not what the super spiritual ones were pushing for. And and this is why Paul's so nuanced here. He he wants them and us not to be fretting and worrying about something that isn't sin, like marrying. He he doesn't want us tied up in knots and uptight, restrained is the word he uses, muzzled by trying to be spiritual, by conforming our external circumstances to some some man-made set of standards. He, he wants us to have this relaxed, undivided devotion to the Lord, whether we're married or whether we're single. But that said, he says, singles have some advantage here because it's simpler. 
Well, I want us to end as we come to the table here. I, I just want us to circle back to where we began. And we began really at the end of chapter 6. This was the lead-in into this, this long chapter 7. Paul's dealing with those here again who are teaching that the body is a liability. It is, it's bad. It has no positive value. It's, it's a complete drag on your spirituality. Paul says, no, no. Not at all. That's not the case. The last words of chapter 6 that set up everything he's been saying in chapter 7 are what? Glorify God with your, in your body. This is this body that God's given you. We've been talking about in Sunday school. It's this, it's this instrument that's intended by God to be something we positively, actively glorify God with in our marriage, in our singleness, and, and, and whatever our circumstances of life because we're so gripped by the call of God even on our bodies. And so... How is it possible for us as fallen sinners? Oh, with all of, the, all of the garbage that comes, that, 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 that's in our hearts and, and, and the things that we do in our bodies, how, how can we possibly glorify God? It's not because we've so reformed ourselves. It's not because we've so cleaned ourselves up. The, the, the basis for him being able to say this, glorify God in your body, is because we've been so wonderfully redeemed. So he says, you are, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So in light of that, glorify God in your body. We need to see everything in our life, as we've been saying, even our bodies through the lens of the gospel. The focus is not on us and all the things we accomplish for the Lord. The focus is on Christ and what he's done for us. And so our subjective, experiential striving for holiness and purity in marriage and in singleness, that, that has to flow from this objective reality that we've already been redeemed by Christ and purchased at great, great price. And this is what we come and we remember as we gather at the table. And so this is... It says so many things, but one of the things that it's doing is it's fueling us and our relaxed, grace-fueled, but undivided devotion to the Lord together in whatever station of life we're in. Let's pray that the Lord would do just that. Father, would you help us as we sing now of your deep, the deep, deep love of God in Jesus Christ as we, as we gather at the table and eat and drink together, remember Jesus together, Father, would you... Would you uh, just direct our gaze, our attention, our, our thoughts, our affections to Calvary, to the, to the reality that you have purchased us at a great price, Lord. And now help us then to glorify you with our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.